0: Hello, everybody. Today is April 13th, 2022, and it is a Wednesday. Hope y'all are doing well. Before I start this episode, I just want to say, if you enjoy the work that I do, a great way to support right in this moment would be to go on my Instagram page and go check out the posts for this. And you'll see... Information on a fundraiser um, for the co-op that I've recently joined. And that's a very good way to help out along with purchasing Bobacha jeans, reposting anything I do, reposting my work, sharing it, and keeping your eye out for stuff. I have a newsletter thing set up On my website. So y'all can go sign up for that as well. But anyway. Let's get into this episode. I am. Titling. Labeling. The Amino Diaries going forward as lullabies. Because I've come to understand that that's what these are. They are lullabies. To either help people sleep. Or just wind down. I encourage. you most so. Gotta talk in code if you like to light a little something up. I would say to definitely do that because it impacts the dynamic of like how you experience this writing for sure. So, okay, we're about to get into it. Thank y'all for being here. Thank you for your ear, and I hope y'all enjoy. Mino Diaries, Episode 6, Part 1, Walela's Altar. Soil felt good beneath Walela's hands as she dug, weeded, and replanted in spruce of her garden. She savored its softness and the range of its malleable texture. She examined the soil's color, coffee black as it should be, fairly moist but undrowned. She examined the snails, earthworms, and mites, which kept her soil healthy. She enjoyed the ease of her garden and the softness of the work in contrast to the hard-edged practice at the House of Cobra. She took a moment to breathe and absorb the sunlight over her space, truly hid the complexity of songbird music. She was so grateful for her home now more than ever. She'd almost lost it in her depressive stupor and had been away for too many seasons, developing her capacities of self-defense. When she'd arrived back from the realm of Sunda, she'd done as Shakti had taught her, sealing her doorways. She poured red brick dust and proclaimed prayers of command through her home, trailing incense and lighting candles. She calmly but firmly established that the boundaries of her house were not to be crossed by the ill-intentioned. She spoke surely, able to proclaim her standing as from Ja with sound belief. Valela banished any residual, unwelcome spirits or vibrations from her space with a calm voice and a sound mind. Valela settled into her house, and it was like she was embracing an old friend after time apart. She was changed and her house was the same but her changes allowed for her to see her home with new perceptions. She opened her blinds and set to dusting, sweeping, washing and rug shaking. She sang made-up songs to her indoor plants as she checked their leaves and sprayed them with water. She was reminded of a need to eat by the gurgling of her stomach and she moved to go to the market. Pausing a moment after locking her front door. She had not hesitated as she would before. There were no hours wasted on the anxiety of the hypothetical. No attempts to predict the unpredictable or prepare for that which was out of her control. She worried not about the distance from her house to the market and what could go wrong if perhaps she did not make it back by sundown or if she'd have the means for transportation if by spending at the market she would not have funds for other instances. She considered these things only in satisfaction that despite that passing through her mind, she had no intention of going back inside. She set her pace easy and patient in her journey because she knew she had time to spare, cleared up by her denial of hesitation to get moving. She walked old corridors, watching the birds and their passing as she walked across Borbancha to the market, where she purchased all she needed before heading back home with daylight to last. She went into her kitchen, lit her stove, and warmed her ovens. She set to cooking, and the sense of her kitchen wafted across the land, attracting old patrons who'd once grown used to her, but had since missed her flavors in absence. Commerce and company were stimulated once more, and when she was invited outside, she was more likely to venture out than to decline. It was after this period of readjustment that she found herself weeding in her garden before the arrival of a turtle dove, hooting its presence as it landed near her. She glanced curiously at the bird, unstartled by her reach to pick it up and look at what was attached to its thin leg. She pulled a small parchment from it before setting the dove loose to fly back to where it came from. Walayla unraveled a note which read, Dearest Walayla, our order is pleased at your progression in power. Take the time you need to further adjust and rest, for there is more to learn and do when you are ready. Go to the estate of Cleopatra Omoya. She will be expecting you with the guidance you will need to transition into your next set of trials. That is, of course, if you still wish to become Mino. The decision will forever be up to you. From Ja, your friends in high and low places. While Layla went to Cleopatra's mansion, halfway between dawn and noon, She rung the bell and waited a few moments before the door was opened by a large man in a dark suit. She vaguely recognized him from the day she'd shot Danahi. He was one of the drivers who'd ushered them to Cleopatra's estate. He looked Waléla over apathetically before stepping aside and letting her through, directing her to sit in the front room and wait until the lady of the house was ready for her. Walayla waited until she heard the soft padding of footsteps on hardwood before a familiar elder stepped into the room. Grand me hekama, in a plain high collared and loose-sleeved dress, walked forward silently, every step slow and deliberate. Her eyes were focused on Walayla's own as she approached, locked in. Walayla felt a little nervous, but she didn't look away. Hekama came to stand before Walela before reaching out tentatively, holding her lined hand a few inches from Walela's face. She lifted her brows beneath her tignon, smiling softly to reassure Walela she didn't mean harm. Walela consented by not pulling away as Hekama cupped her jaw ever gently and brought their eyes to a focused exchange. It was highly intimate, intense. For Valela could read nothing in the ancient Hekama's step but felt that the Grand Mino may have been looking straight into her soul. She didn't pull the exchange was strange but not unsafe with the wise woman. Hekama was a woman of many years, her eyes having seen the birth and death of many. She was a scholar whose knowledge was as vast as her deliberate silence. She looked into Walayla's eyes and gathered whatever it was she was looking for. When she spoke, her voice was deeper than Walayla anticipated it to be and full of certainty when she said, The helpless kitten has become a tigress. I prayed on this, she said, nothing else, for she'd said just enough for Walayla to understand. She was instantly grateful feeling the sincerity in Hekama's words. She thanked the elder before she was signaled to follow Hekama through the main corridor of the house's first story, out the back door, off a screened porch, and out onto the expanse of the estate to a structure of glass. It was a domed, honeycomb window-pane greenhouse, standing under the coils of a wide oak tree. The entrance was a painted glass door depicting the flight of red cardinals. Hekama opened the door and instructed Walela to follow her inside, past rows of plants, glass-cased artifacts, shelves of books, and vials of herbs and potions. They walked to the center of the greenhouse, where a figure dressed in iris purple sat cross-legged on a circular dais in front of a large altar. Hekama nodded to Walela to wait, and she turned and left the greenhouse. Come sit with me. "'Cleopatra said, without turning around, and Wallela went to sit beside her. "'Cleopatra's eyes were closed as she chanted silent mantras to herself, "'summing through a long line of gilded beads joined by a crucifix. "'The altar she prayed before was draped in white cloth, "'adorned by candles, drying palm leaves, glass vials of sacred water, "'and more beads like the ones she carried. "'There were various crystals and tokens,' jaws of honey, magnolia flowers, red feathers, and homage symbols to the motherland. Incense burned and wisp smoke passed the photographs and portraits of men and women what Layla did not recognize but could tell were from various dimensions of time and culture. There were painted cards with winged beings on them, placed around the base of the altar's focal icon, a statue of a dark-skinned woman, veiled in white and navy blue holding a still-eyed child at her hip. When Cleopatra reached her final mantra, she opened amber eyes and turned her gaze to Walayla, looking the young woman over, pleased with what she saw. Walayla was certainly different physically. Her body toned and dense. Her once soft hands were calloused and hard like iron. Her grown hair braided and rolls down her neck. But what Cleopatra registered most was the change in Walayla's eyes, the way they met her own without their former anxiety or fear. Walela's eyes did not question whether they were worthy enough to meet Cleopatra's From Ja, Walela. From Ja, you know Cleopatra. Cleopatra smiled, for Walela's proclamation of divine origin was strong. Who is that? Waléla asked, gesturing to the statue. And Cleopatra smiled, summing her rosary beads. That is Sophia Madonna, queen and patron of a great many things. Years ago, she rescued me from a terrible darkness and has since been my patron. Walayla well, looked from the stone figure to Cleopatra, noting the structural homages of her attire to the woman on the altar. Cleopatra inquired on Walayla's time in Sunday, and upon hearing the story, she nodded. I wasn't certain that our little hummingbird would rise to the challenge. Cobra Lotus is a grueling master. But alas, you are a tiger before me, all in your eyes. Well, Lily got chills for the mirroring of Cleopatra's statement with that of Hekama a while before. Cleopatra gestured to the envelope of the greenhouse. I maintain this space as my sanctuary, my temple, in a way that my house is not. This greenhouse is a space for focus, sacred thoughts, prayer, and untainted energy. She gestured to her altar. Here is where my ancestors, guides, guardians, and angels may rest in their travels across time and space. I see it as a station of entry and exit between the physical and spiritual realms. They are free to come and go as they please and encourage to manifest forward when I pray. As I keep my mind and body clean as a vessel of spiritual force, I keep this station clean as well. An altar is so sacred. It is sensitive to all of you, all you do within and out of the sanctuary. Cleopatra took a deep breath, absorbing her space in its tranquility. It is a mirror of the parts of you which cannot be reflected in glass. It is work to manifest the altar and further to maintain it and expand it over time, growing as you grow. But it's a good work, a full work. Would you like to manifest your own? Cleopatra asked and Valela looked at the altar, thinking of the others she'd seen and sanctified power they emanated into physical space. Valela accepted Cleopatra's aid in creating her own altar. Creating an altar turned out to be about much more than the physical construction of one. Waléla well, imagined that Cleopatra would arrive at her house, and help her to put her altar together, and that would be that. When Cleopatra showed up the next morning after Waléla's visit, she realized her assumption was way off. Waléla well, had cleaned her house. Prepared lunch and dressed in anticipation of Cleopatra's arrival, all for a loud horn honk to break her waiting. Curious, she went to the front of her house, onto the porch, and looked down at the street. Parked was the last thing she'd expected to see a big yellow school bus of all things. The door to the bus opened, and Cleopatra stepped out of it. In true fashion, dressed head to toe in blue and complimentary hued opulence, a wide-brimmed hat with a feather top in her attire. She looked up at Walayla and waved for her to come down. I thought you were coming to help me make my altar, Walela called down in confusion and Cleopatra just laughed. I am. Come on now, we on a tight schedule, Cleopatra said, turning back to enter the bus. Walayla was confused as ever, but her teachers had not yet led her astray. She locked up her house and walked down to the bus to see that Cleopatra was the one driving it. Wellela took a step in, glancing to her left to see rows of young eyes glancing curiously at her. The bus was filled with children, eager with anticipation of adventure. Wellela glanced at Cleopatra, who winked at her and instructed her to take a seat near the front near. A young girl with glasses and plaits who did not hesitate to fire a flurry of questions while Layla's way. Cleopatra put the bus in motion, and the bold children inspected her on the way to an unknown destination. While Layla looked at Cleopatra through the bus's front mirror and the Mino glanced back at her from behind a pair of bold blue-tinted shades in compliment to the rest of her fit. Where are we going? she asked. Cleopatra and the little girl beside her answered eagerly. To the bayou road. Walayla well, looked at the child and asked her what it was, and Cleopatra cut in before the child could speak. Uh-uh, Nini. Don't ruin the surprise. Nini zipped her lips and sat back, and Cleopatra laughed. Nini is one of my more eager students. Tell Miss Walayla what you want to be when you grow up. Nini turned back to Walayla, eager with the permission to talk again. I want to be a zoologist. I want to be a botanist. A singer. One after the other, the children listed their aspired professions, and Layla looked at them all. She was suddenly self-conscious of her unfamiliarity with children. This bunch seemed alright, though. Chatty, but well-mannered. Charlie. Cleopatra's voice was stern and turned everybody, including Layla's, attention to the front of the bus. She didn't turn around in her address to a boy at the rear of it. I've told you about jumping around when this bus is moving. Now I don't think just because we halfway to the bayou that I won't turn this thing around right now. And then you're going to have to tell your mama why I dropped you back off. Well, Layla glanced back at Charlie who stilled in his seat and the rest of the children calmed and turned. Walayla glanced back at Cleopatra, who steadily maintained order in her big yellow carriage without ever turning her head from the road or raising her voice. The bus ride continued all the way to the edge of a winding body of water lined with high cypresses and willow trees. A definite trail stretched along its banks as far as Walayla could see in either direction. Cleopatra rose from her seat and turned to her passengers. All right, kiddos, you know the drill. Stay within my line of sight at all times. Don't let me catch you running in the street and keep your hands to yourself. Nini, Cleopatra turned her eyes to Walayla's bus buddy. Explain the exercise to Miss Walela. Cleopatra pulled a small notebook from her purse with a pencil for Walayla to take. Nini spoke in deliberate and focused eloquence, glancing steadily at Cleopatra for head nods of reassurance. Today we are documenting in... Ingen, indigenous, Cleopatra assisted, indigenous waterfowl of the bayou rope. We ought to spot at least three species that are native or migratory to Bobantra's waterways, sketch them, and label them. Once we've named our three birds, we can play, but make sure to stay from the water's edge because there's gators in them. I ain't scared of no gator. My daddy got a pet alligator and named him after me. His name, Lil' Charlie Jr. Jr. The children of the bus found that exceedingly amusing. And Cleopatra herself could barely hide her own smirk at Charlie's outburst when she glanced at Walayla and said, Mr. Charlie is fond of his tall tales, before calling out, Scared or not, Charlie, I am not the one to test your bravery with. And if I have to ruin my dress to jump in that water to get you out, I'll have you writing lines till the sun don't shine. Cleopatra drew in a breath and stepped out the walkway. All right, everybody off, single file. The children cohesively made their way off the bus, glancing curiously and shyly at Walayla as they passed, each darting off to go and find their subjects of observation. Nini was the last to head off the bus, adjusting her glasses with utmost seriousness that Walayla couldn't help but laugh at. That Nini is a trip, baby. Smart as a whip, though, Cleopatra said, leading Walayla off the bus. The bayou was bustling with activity even on the winter day when many of the trees were bare. There were herons, egrets, cormorants, ducks, hawks, ibises, geese, and turtles lounging and passing along. Cleopatra and Walayla watched the children explore before she finally asked menu more of generous curiosity, the more of genuine curiosity than confused impatience. What does this have to do with making an altar? Cleopatra gesture to the water and the ridge path they stood on. Your altar is a spiritual station for your ancestors. Your ancestors lived on this land just like you do. To create an altar, you must understand yourself. To understand yourself, you have to understand your ancestors, who you come from. To understand them, you need to be familiar with the things you indisputably share with them across time, space, life, and death. Cleopatra knelt down, placing her palm against the grass as a flock of ibises flew overhead, and the children laughed some spaces away. The land is itself. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, the land itself, the histories which manifested your present the plants and animals you see and depend on, that they did as well. They saw the same sun, the same moon and sky. They drank the same water and tilled the same soil. Cleopatra gestured to the bayou road, noting that it stretched far in either direction, right through the heart of the land from the wide water Oquata to the great river Mississippi. Bourboncha means land of many tongues in the language of your people. The various nations and tribes of bronze-skinned, black-haired folk of the sun, the forests, the swamps. Many people used to travel here along the tributaries of the Mississippi, across the lake from the north and over the gulf from the south. Even some ancients from the motherland crossed the big water way before anybody was forced to come and change. A lot of people came here to trade fish, baskets, crops, black bear fat, and fur. Gator leather, venison, and moccasins, turquoise, and gold. They used this corridor, the Bayou Road, to get from the Okwata to the marketplace and their sacred burial grounds. Beyond its function as a port, these lands were still are and will always be a mecca for spiritual potency. It's all delta lands. Ports are full of portals most of which the human eye cannot see, and the obsessed seeker may never find. These trees speak to those who can listen. The birds sing secrets. People come to find things, and are finding themselves. Sometimes they stay, other times they take their learning and bring tale to somewhere else. We remain, though. Something keeps us here, no matter what we see coming, no matter what we go through. Some think we stuck. Trapped, A fishbowl overexposed to the elements. I argue we just know the value of a good home. And it don't matter the hypothetical risk. We know what we see, feel, and receive in present. Melanated hands make everything you see stand. Our prayers keep things from being worse than they might be. Magic is argued among many. It's not something you can prove to nobody, so they say it doesn't exist. Practitioners is no better, though. We know whether our power is believed or not. It's our responsibility to learn what we must, practice it, and serve this land as it serves us. Cleopatra scooped some soil from the ground and let it trail from her dark, crimson-nailed fingers. Cleopatra had Walayla attend multiple field trips with her eager students, who Walayla warmed up to and eventually developed a mutual adoration. She talked to them about gardening. They talked to her about everything, blurring the lines of imagination and reality with no guilt on their souls. Everybody went, Cleopatra set them loose, supervising their practice and independent research. They came back with all sorts of notes and sketches and stories to tell while they indulged in adventure. It was Walayla who received the most direct tutelage from Cleopatra on their trips explaining to her much of what the children already received through their own family's oral teachings. They visited a section of the river levee, where at first glance all seemed as simple as the river's current until she noticed where Cleopatra was heading. They came upon the statue of a woman, unremarkable beyond her black stone nakedness. Her face was carved in an expression of dejected defiance. While Layla looked down at the hands of the statue bound in chains as were the ankles, while Layla reached out to touch the stone and barely heard Cleopatra's warning before making contact, and her soul lurched. In an instant, she saw a multitude of images in the pulse of a thousand emotions of the plotting, snatching, stealing, prodding, branding, beating, bonding, retching of bodies in the dark, She felt in her chest the nauseous lurching of unstable waves, the odors of trapped bodies and rustling metals. She saw the yellowing of jaundiced eyes and the bleeding of blistered feet, felt the heat of a too bright sun over water, the fever of despair. Walayla, Walayla was pulled back by Cleopatra's voice as she had been at the base of the chime tree. She gasped deep, stepping away from the statue, shaking. I saw, I saw, I... Shhh, said, shaking her head and bringing her fingers to her lips. There is no need to speak what is known by us all. Shared ancestral memories of the Middle Passage, we collectively know as much as is necessary. But beyond that, we do not dive into the depths of that darkness. Endured by those generations, so we would not. Cleopatra drew a magnolia from her purse and a ruby from her sleeve, kneeling down to lay them at the feet of the statue where many other offerings were laid. Know only that this is where the ships landed, which carried ancestors against their will from across the big water. When you pass through, pay respect, give kindness, show grace for what was endured, Malayla turned to the Mino and found it hard to look away from the marvel of her form. Cleopatra Omoya was a woman of high knowledge and power, coated always in fine silk or pure cotton. She preferred the loose embrace of sensual fabrics which flowed as the current of her voice, soft but heavy like the river. She was alluring in the way she carried her eyes and swaying in her fluid motions. She stood like a queen, ever poised and ready, her body astutely covered at all times, save for the show of her hands decorated with rings and perfectly done red nails. Her knowledge of Bobancha was vast enough to fill up all of her and Walayla's time, and Walayla found her ultimately as mysterious as ever. Cleopatra spent her time with facts and purposeful testimonies never wasting her voice, which was itself an instrument of immense power, full, solid. It caught Walela's attention and focus to detail. She picked Walela up in the yellow bus many times over the course of several weeks, taking her to various sites of sacred significance to the land, teaching Walela context which always circled back to the making of her altar. Outside of field trips, But was invited to the greenhouse where Cleopatra instructed her in root work, a practice which blended the the medicinal techniques of Turtle Island and the motherland. When we came from across the big water, we carried vast knowledge, but were largely without the plants needed for our own medicine. The indigenous people of these lands showed us which plants to substitute with, thus preserving our own power and creating new practices. Cleopatra loved talking of her practice, which was not rooted or particularly removed from any one thing. To explain it was to explain the many aspects of its entirety, theologies and spiritualities, cultural practices from many ethnicities. They took us from so many different places, and this land was already one of great cultural diversity so naturally. To understand ourselves, we must understand many things. It is a task, time expensive work, but it's worth it once you understand the power of being connected to so much and what it means. Malayla well, would listen to Cleopatra for hours, her crush on the woman not at all romantic, for she desired nothing physical from her, but she naturally emulated the Mino. She admired Cleopatra's eloquence, her grace, and fluidity. She wanted to be soft in the way Cleopatra was, soft by choice, soft in fortitude. All of Layla's life, she'd been soft from a fear of the consequences of choosing otherwise. But Cleopatra maintained softness in tone, touch, and movement, because if need be, she, like all Mino, could summon the force of tangible wrath. She carried always her golden dagger at her hip, though she, being more a scholar than a soldier, seldom used it in all her years in the order. Cleopatra's softness was the mark of her ferocity, for she had no need for performative aggression. Her preference for soft fabrics as opposed to light armor, a signal of her skill in combat, kept largely secret. Secret between her and the souls foolish enough to have ever challenged her spirit. While Layla was progressing steadily in her own development of the practice, when Cleopatra invited her out on a cold evening when the air of Beaubancho was strange, she did not come in the bus, nor were the children in company at her arrival. While Layla peered out at the revving of a crimson motorcycle, Cleopatra wore red to match. Only today she did not wear a dress. She wore a fitted suit which hugged her frame with enough room for movement. A sheer red scarf trailed from around her neck. And when Willela reached the bike, she was handed a spare helmet and told to hold on to Cleopatra before she took off. The streets were not as usual. They were tinged with the strange color of that dark place. The limbo had loomed in that distant memory with the sun spirit, Nahini. The sights were shifting around them, as were the smells and sounds. It was as if the portals between Bobanche's dimensions were glitching as Cleopatra rode on into the totality of sickly purple, yellow, and green aura. The streets in this dimension were filled with people, spirits, pigmen, hounds, revelers and performers, limboed, swirling ghosts, and more. There were humans there as those she knew from her own home dimension. And none of them looked afraid in their trekking. Cleopatra parked her bike as the dusk settled and fireworks boomed and lit up the strange-hued sky. While Layla peeked at the lights emanating from a street some blocks ahead, Cleopatra sensed Layla's nerves and assured her they were fine and would not be stuck in the parallel dimension for long. They walked to the mass of a crowd, stretching endless blocks before the passing of floats topped with revelers throwing beads and other plastic trinkets, reached forward with utmost rigor and glee by the gathered crowd. When Cleopatra and Willela stood among them, it was as if they were not even visible to their eyes. Cleopatra began to walk in the opposite direction of the floats passing. She did not appear to be interested in anything that was happening around them, as strange as it was, but... When Waléla asked what this festival was, Cleopatra explained, Carnival, the end of it anyway, this parade is rex, the parade of the king. Cleopatra explained the roots of this celebration, for layers of light and darkness. She said the procession was foundationed in religious ritual, which was itself manipulated by political and economic intent of the aristocratic and further alchemized by its participants into a whole of many parts. Some used it to dive loosely into revelries and brace. Others used it to become parts of themselves they could not be at any other time. Some used the carnival season for commerce, others for ritual. Some engaged blindly, and others hyper-intentionally, working their own cultures and theologies into the fabric of someone else's, making room for themselves where exclusion was intended while Layla watched the crowds of people, hands raised as if in worship to the tossing of plastic beads, perplexed by the stimulation of the activity. She registered the opulence of those on the floats and caught a terrible glimpse of forms she recognized. She reached for Cleopatra, gesturing to the top of the float, where dressed in their gaudy opulence were several of her old masters, smiling and waving with empty eyes and sickly-hued skin. Walayla well, saw them for their snake-like irises, their claws and sharp-toothed maws, but registered that the crowd did not. Why do they worship those monsters? Why did you bring me here? Walela well, asked, and Cleopatra's eyes were patient, lacking any reflection of Walela's well, own alarm. Our dimensions are complex, Walela, well, as our own journeys. She gestured to the passing of the floats. There's darkness here, certainly. Cleopatra smiled and waved her hand at a passing float, and a string of green beads were thrown to her, and she caught it effortlessly in her left hand, examining the shiny plastic beads and glancing intentionally at the rosary she carried in her right before she took the green beads and placed them around Waleza's neck. But where there is darkness, there is always light as well. Neither can ever exist without the other. Walayla looked at the fat Tuesday parade, seeing the flashing of many lights, the gleeful smiles of people in the night, the heady reach for reception from the floats. She saw that the people enjoyed themselves, though she had trouble understanding what they enjoyed so much about it, but she sensed the darkness more than the light in this space. Cleopatra explained, however, that everyone's senses were different. That they chose to focus on the light more than the darkness which was proximal, while well, Layla still didn't understand, for if all Cleopatra had explained about this parade's origins were true, what well, was their light? While well, Layla's psychic intuitions had grown potent, and she felt heavy with the stimulation of visions, dark and twisted aspects of this dimension of this celebration rendered an attraction for demonic merchants from across the realms excited to buy ancestors, who to them were still, perhaps, no more than bodies, eager to celebrate their purchases and communicate their dominance through the literal and metaphorical elevation of the floats. Cleopatra looked at Walayla, never gaslighting her anxiety, for she knew much more than what Willela could even process in that short time. Cleopatra was a scholar, and she knew the land for its many dimensions and its swirling and connected histories. What can light exist in all this? Walayla asked, and Cleopatra took her palm and placed it against Walayla's chest. Here, Walayla got chills at Cleopatra's touch. You are of light and love, Walayla, potent in power you have yet to master, but will in time. Your light It's precisely why I have brought you here into this darkness. For the same reason others come who know the details, but choose alchemy over acceptance. We may hope to exist in pure light, to surround ourselves with those who are like us, to root ourselves in what is safe, quiet, tranquil, and purely divine. But that leaves the question, what is there for us to do with all that light? We Mino are beings of light, but we are queens of the darkness, Cleopatra said, and Malayla recalled Amba's testimony of the tigress, who is herself the darkness, she who the frightening fear. Minohood is a healer's path as it is a warrior's, a scholar's, a spiritualist's. We work, grow, and groom our minds and our bodies for the sake of a purpose which exists perhaps most primarily in the unsavory spaces we are destined to change and cure, protect. I brought you here to give you a glimpse of the darkness. You will always be called on by Jad to face. The luxury of hiding from it is not afforded to we, Mino. Cleopatra reached for Willela's hand and they walked the sidewalk. Those you aid may never see you. Never praise you. Never help you in return. They may stimulate your obstacles. They may even transform into your very enemies. But you must remember always. Your power is poured into you by the will of your Most High. And it cannot be overturned unless you allow it. It may not be lost. Lest you allow your egos and fears to sabotage it. Your power of light is grown most in the vastness of the dark. Every time you stand before the shadows with bravery, will, and perseverance, you communicate to our creator that you understand the dynamics of your relationship as an extension of Jamal highest form, experiencing, passing through this physical realm. We walk with our heads held high, fearless in knowing that wherever we go, whether it be in the brightness of holy dawn Noon, or the pitch of the new moon and starless witching hour, our bodies may come to feel pain and they may even be damaged beyond our blood's capacity to feel us further. But our spirits, they belong to us and we decide their forms. You decide, Walayla, what you focus your attention on in this place, as with all others. Have you not shed fear? Have you not weaponized your form? Have you not become as the tiger? Cleopatra stopped, drawing Waléla's attention to her fierce amber eyes. Walayla found. She did indeed understand Cleopatra's intention after all. She looked around and saw the space for darkness but also for light. The smiling of children, the happiness of leisure, the union of communal celebration. She focused on her own security and job most high. And her understanding of fear's uselessness. Her breathing eased and her heart rate slowed and the aura of the dimension literally began to change color as the sky cleared and the trees changed, their leaves growing again. She heard more laughter than anything, saw more smiles than evil things, focused less on the presence of her old masters or their hog and hound minions moving through the streets. She settled in knowing she was largely unseen, unnoticed, with no reason to draw attention to herself in the crowd, no need to focus on any evil here. She did not need to rush back to the protection of another, or of a light space. She did not seek the security of the sun, for she understood that all the protection security, she, and security she needed was inside of her, in the iron strength of her trained fist. Your altar is a mirror of that which is not reflected in glass. Out here your body, your mind, and your spirit are the altar, kept, protected, clean-minded, cherished, grown. When the time comes to build your structural altar, it will serve as your spiritual root, like those of a tree. It will stand in your sanctuary as you stand in the darkness. The sound of your faith, courage, and will when you are far from it the more potent your prayers will be when you kneel before it. They kept walking, and it appeared Cleopatra was guiding Walayla somewhere particular, her red boots padding along, garnering a few curious glances here and there from the revelers. They turned on a street lined with long buildings bunched close together, passing people walking toward what they moved away from. They walked until they reached the cobblestone front of a white three-towered building with a large entryway, situated before an ominous courtyard, seeping with an energy Walela was not fond of. The smell of this area was rancid, and she felt the energy of eyes watching her, which she could not see. Cleopatra instructed Walela to wait outside, to not approach the fortune tellers and card readers, and to blend in as best as possible, insisting that she wouldn't be long. While Layla was nervous to be left alone, but she supposed this was meant to be practiced for her eventual independence in navigating the shadowy nights of the crisscrossed dimensions. She nodded assent and Cleopatra drew in a breath, her ever-still eyes glinting with what while was astonished to register may have been nervousness. She looked at the towers of the building, topped with crosses, the same shape as the crucifix on Cleopatra's beads. She did as told, waiting a bit anxiously but obediently for Cleopatra to return. She watched people pass who largely paid her no mind, dressed in all sorts of arrangements and colors. They didn't look human, more like abstract caricatures of what Walayla was used to. She glanced at the psychics doing business at tables, turning cards, grazing palms. She heard the clonking of mule hooves and the blowing of a trumpet, before a clap of thunder boomed. It drew her attention east, and she saw a patch of sky above the street corridor was oddly green, growing in its reach. She stood, peering to get a better look for a light source. There was something coming her way, moving fairly slow, but glowing bright and noxious green. The thunder boomed again, And the sky became suddenly full of dark clouds as the wind picked up some space, some pace, and Walayla felt something graze her arm. She looked down and flicked away a large insect, a locust, which flew off and landed on the ground before taking off again. She then registered a hum, a thrum of wings as more locusts approached, until they began to swarm at Walayla's horror. She got as out the way as possible as the locusts passed through, covering her face with her forearm as the revelers rushed to the parade and the psychics hurriedly packed their tables, rushing off from their spots. Wellela stayed put, following Cleopatra's instruction, not giving in to fear. She was alarmed, though, by the passing of her old frighteners, limboed, walking, tattered, pocked, pale, and bruised past her, empty-eyed and shuffling in the direction of the king's parade. Most did not notice Walayla, save for a few who glanced at her, stopped to look at her with apathetic eyes, and then continue on, bathed in the light from the east, which had grown brighter, bathing the white building and cobblestones in cobblestones and emerald and trailing smoke of sickly sweet odor like rotting flesh. Walayla grimaced at the smell before turning to see the source, A figure was passing, dressed in all black save for an ivory mask with spaces carved at the eyes and mouth. Though whatever was behind the mask did not appear to be flesh, it was green light smoking out of the eye sockets. The black-robed figure carried a chained lantern, cradling an orb of bright green light ambling slowly like a shepherd of the limboed. Walayla well, wanted to embody the fearlessness she just discussed with Cleopatra, but she had to admit she was not prepared for this sight, and her body shook with nerves. She stepped back, attempting to sneak up the steps and maybe find sanctuary behind the doors Cleopatra walked into, but as she began to creep, the black-robed figure noticed her and turned his lantern onto her form. When the being faced her head-on, Walayla well, found she recognized it. Some time before, she'd been studying with Cleopatra, looking through the Mino's many personal research journals. She'd come upon the sketch of a figure which was very similar to the one that stood before her. Cleopatra had seen what caught Walila's attention and explained, that is a plague spirit, an ancient being of power serving neither light nor darkness, chaotically neutral. They have brought even the mightiest empires to their knees by the command of their empty vessels have always existed beside healers. It takes one of immense power to face that primordial power and remain unscathed, Cleopatra said, and Walayla asked, have you faced one? But Cleopatra's eyes just went cold, and she stated simply, I do my best to stay out their way. They are not a nemesis of healers, but they are not our friends either best to avoid them as much as possible. There where was, though, right in the spirit's line of sight, with no knowledge of how to escape its reach. To her horror, it began to approach her, slowly but surely, raising one of its hands, oil black and tipped with sharp nails. Where well, Layla didn't run away, for she could see she was blocked off by the limboed. She planted her feet and balled her fists and courage to use them, even if they were ultimately not enough to save her. It was then that by some blessed timing, the heavy doors behind her swung open, and Walela turned to see Cleopatra, who herself gasped at the approach of the plague spirit, which then lunged forward with terrible speed. As quick as it was, though Cleopatra moved like lightning and faster than Walela's mind could process, she placed her body between Walela's and the spirit drew her dagger which flashed bright gold against the green light morphing into a spear which auked in a singing twirl. There was a loud hissing wail as the plague spirit bounded back, writhing its hand. Cleopatra's spear had severed one of its clawed fingers and it fumed green smoke with rage as if it were not horrifying enough. The spirit's rage summoned the gusting of wind, and the limbos who traveled with it grew agitated and moaning, licking their lips and twitching and grimacing, all turning their attention on their master's assaulter. The plague spirit straightened, and from the cover of his heavy robes unfolded a pair of massive and jagged black feathered wings, which upon beating worked up wind, which made the oaks of the courtyard rustle and groan, falling leaves fly and the window shutters and roof gables rattle and fall. Cleopatra remained steadfast with her spit in hand, raising the now glowing weapon in challenge to the monstrous form. How dare you, the plague spirit's voice sounded of many different pitches in one. You are no match for my power. Cleopatra took a deep breath, knowing the plague spirit's words to ring with truth. She was beyond the bounds of her own dimension, and for all her skill, her proficiency in hoodoo nor spear-fighting could destroy this ancient being who was among those written in the old text of her beloved spiritualities. Plague spirits followed different rules than those which bound demons, and therefore could not be warded off by even the most skillful exorcist as Cleopatra. Her body shook with its own fear, but Walela was still as a child, whom she'd brought into this dimension knowing full well the threats which inhabited it. She grit her teeth for the necessity she'd faced in leaving Walela outside to handle important business. But she stood fast. She would stand between this being and Walela, no matter its ancient power and fury. Perhaps not, Cleopatra said. Silver-tongued, even through pounding of her heart in the... I'm sorry, y'all. Perhaps not, Cleopatra said. Silver-tongued, even through the pounding of her heart in her throat. But as it stands, you will have to destroy my body to reach this child of Jah. And I swear upon my ancestors in the force of Mino Mantle, by this emblem at my chest, Cleopatra reached for the arch necklace squeezing it tight with silent prayer to all those who she knew walked with her whom she could not see but always felt whose existence was always work to reassure against the doubt of danger she concluded her challenge to the ancient being of plague you will not defeat me without your first share of struggle and if i am to leave this world i will take parts of you with me into the afterlife you will miss and in my ascended form I shall find you and taunt you and haunt you until the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. The air buzzed with the static of climactic tension, and Cleopatra's spirit pulsed with the force of her spirit's courage. Walayla well, watched, shaky, not with fear of the plague monster, but in awe of Cleopatra's insistent defiance, even in the face of her physical demise. There was no fear of death. In fact, she seemed to welcome it—the prospect of an honorable defeat in defense of Walela, her student, friend, and Mino's sister—worth its weight in the gold of life's long work. There was no hesitation in her courage, and that gave Walela courage in her own heart. The plague spirit beat its wings again and released a terrible wailing hiss. In that same moment, something happened which Walela should have never would have never anticipated. There was a soft humming to her right. She turned and saw, of all things, a hummingbird with feathers of emerald. It came to hover before her, its beady black eyes, making quick contact before it turned and flew toward the plague spirit, which now lunged toward the bracing Cleopatra, who released a defiant cry of war at its attack. The hummingbird flew forward like lightning, so small that it wasn't clear where it went exactly. Layla only registered the flash of shimmering emerald light against the noxious green smoke of the plague spirit. The winged being halted in its tracks, and a gurgling cough-like sound came from behind its mask. At its center, a pit opened, like cloth being burned by candle flame, and it expanded, forcing the spirit to clutch its chest and drop its lantern on the ground. Wala well, heard the wailing of souls and the clapping of thunder as the limboed frenzied and raised as their master, whose form began to twist and turn and change until he became nothing but green smoke, which lifted into the air, leaving the tattered and burning robes behind, before swirling into the sky and flying off like a wind-blown cloud over the roofs of the strange quarter. The limboed followed after their master, who would take much time to regenerate a physical form. Mm-hmm. Cleopatra stood for a long moment with her spear still raised before her nerves took over and her body went to shaking with release of tension. Walayla well, steadied her as best she could and they both slumped at the foot of what Walayla would learn was called a cathedral. Are you all right? Cleopatra asked and Walayla nodded, You? Cleopatra nodded, Yes. Before gesturing forward to where the black tattered robes blew away, and the light of the green lantern dissipated, but not before its flame glinted a shimmer on something small left behind on the ground. What is that? Wellilla stood and went to the object. It was the hummingbird, no longer feathers and <clears throat> no longer feathers and flesh. Its body had been frozen in open winged flight. And transformed by some mysterious magic into hard and sparkling diamond. While Layla picked it up and felt the diamond bird pulse with the ghost of life, she pressed the hummingbird to her chest, thanking John Most High for a most unexpected miracle. Sometime after their encounter with the plague spirit, Cleopatra felt that it was finally time for Layla to construct her physical altar. She'd instructed Waléla during their many adventures across Bobancha to gather what resonated with her spirit, to not question why her intuition led her so. She said that, in time, her collection would make sense, and Cleopatra carried with her trinkets, gems, and libations to leave as offerings for whatever Waléla gathered. They set up Waléla's altar in her kitchen, for it was her favorite and most sacred safe space. Its base was a the glass case, and its layers began from the top down. First, Walele well, veiled its roof with a laced white cloth, sourced from a thrift store. On top of it, she set an abundant ivy with vines hanging low, long, and full for abundance and life. On the first shelf, beneath the ivy and within the white blanket of the lace cloth, well, Layla placed a ceramic bowl filled with sacred water which Cleopatra best herself. Next to it, she sat a bundle of sage and an array of fresh flowers, irises, magnolias, and hibiscus from her garden. At the rear, she sat an orchid plant, for she loved them most, because to have them was to keffer the plant in its entirety and to savor their long and sudden blooming. The second shelf was for talismans of protection powerful homages to the theologies and spiritualities of her ancestors. She placed rosary beads, gifted from Cleopatra's collection, wood-carved symbols from the motherland, lucky beans, seeds in honor of her garden, a small dagger to symbolize protection. The third shelf was centered by her diamond hummingbird placed next to an onyx ginyami for the supremacy of God. She placed a true cowrie for wealth, and an eagle feather for freedom and mobility. The base of the shelf was a homage of talismans, figures, and gathered plants in honor of Bulbancha and its indigenous plants and animals, each of them representing something different. The deer for vitality and physicality, the hawk for vision, the owl for clairvoyance, the turtle for wisdom, patience, and longevity. There was the black bear for adaptability, the bison for resources, the otter for happiness and fluidity, the panther for focus, the alligator for magic, the crow for knowledge, etc. Around the base of the altar were many candles of white and ivory, lit along with incense and offerings of raw vegetables and coconut rum and flowers. From the moment of its completion, Walela went to hear Walela well, went to her altar with her journal, or each spoken word, and laid to rest her burdens and fears. Upon its completion, she felt her home take on a fullness she had not realized was missing. She kept it clean as she kept herself, reminded of Jamos High and his miracles, big and small, high and low, near and far, understood and ever mysterious, as the hummingbird turned to diamond in the heart of plague All right y'all, so if y'all want to y'all could take an intermission break or you could just keep rolling into the next sanction of this episode. And I hope y'all enjoyed it so far. The Mino Diaries episode 6 part 2 Night of Obatala At the approach of the spring equinox, and the waxing of the full moon, Walayla rose from her bed one morning and set to walking. She walked the ancient corridors shown to her by Cleopatra's intentional tutelage. She walked the bayou road, to the river landing, to the Congo Square, to the burial grounds, over the bone road, to the ridge land and back home, taking all the way till the setting of the sun to return back. Glimpsing a shooting star and graced by the rising of the yellow moon before she went back inside and succumbed to slumber. She did not know for certain what stimulated her hike across the civilized swamp, but she imagined that in her passing of the oaks, cypresses, sycamores, and magnolias, that she was gathering her ancestors from across the land for whatever she was coming I'm sorry, for whatever was coming, but she didn't know, but could feel it the edge of precipice. Perhaps it was the edge of the full moon's beaming which stirred her curious optimism. But a surprise was in store. The next day came, and the morning, noon, and afternoon passed like any other day, where Layla Gordon cooked, served, and sat with Bastet. She'd forgotten about the previous day's curiosities. Settling in for a nap, which lasted for an unknown number of hours until there was a ringing of her bell. She'd been deep asleep and took a moment to register where and who she was before the bell rang again. She called out that she was coming. It was late in the evening and the sun was setting steadily in the west out her kitchen window. She trudged to the door and opened it to see who she did not expect at all. Girl, you took long enough to come to the door. Now I know you're not in here sleeping. Kalaha didn't ask for permission to step inside. She just walked right through the front door. Well, Layla was a little confused by the young Mino's arrival, but at least she wasn't fuming fury like the last time she'd seen her. Kalaha was dressed in a fine jumpsuit, shimmering with beaded magnolias against the purple field. Her blind bob bumped at the ends. She looked as immaculate as she was, fierce, her beauty seemingly effortless. She carried her own dagger clipped at her hip, her gold jewelry polished against the lavender of her jumpsuit. It's Saturday night, please tell me you have some plans beyond cooking and feeding these plants of yours, Kalaha said, turning and folding her arms and challenged. She knew Layla didn't have any plans, it's why Cleopatra had sent her over to get the young woman out the house. She spent enough time in tutelage. that she needed to go out and have some fun. Kalaha said that tonight was the perfect chance because it was a special holiday, her favorite holiday. Kalaha did, not indeed, ra- Kalaha did indeed radiate excitement, which was a little disorienting for Waléla, who wasn't used to Kalaha's aura beyond defensiveness. Kalaha registered Waléla's confusion and reassured, I'm sorry about what I told you the last time I saw you. I've done a lot of work on my delivery since you left. More intentional with watching this temper of mine. I like to blame it all on the wolf blood, but the truth is, I just get careless with my anger sometimes. No hard feelings, she asked, and Walayla smiled reassurance back. No hard feelings, she said, and Kalaha ordered her to hurry and get dressed because they were going out. Leila, mutable as ever, but also intrigued by Kalaha's enthusiasm, obliged and picked out some clothes. Kalaha's style was sensual, figure-hugging. Her attire allowed for mobility and action, but still showed off her feminine assets. She shared some of Cleopatra's stylish grace, but she was far from as reserved as the old amino. Even fully covered, Kalaha wasn't hiding anything. But in the same respect, she wasn't performing. She dressed as she did, bold with lashes, lip gloss, studded nails, rings, and accessories balanced sublimely because she enjoyed it. She enjoyed the fun of design and costumes merged with everyday life and activity. If her shape attracted the right kind of attention, it was a plus. And if it attracted the wrong attention, she need only shift her stance to remind a looker of the dagger at her hip. While Cleopatra was soft, Kutlaha was a bit hard-edged, projecting, and bold in her voice. Her smile was like the stars, though, and her touch was gentle. She saw what Walayla picked out to wear, lifted her brows, not terribly impressed, but not in disagreement either. She said, at least let me do your makeup. Walayla was a little intimidated by the prospect. She'd worn makeup in the captivity of her old master's. But it had always been a strange reflection of their own forms. They wanted to make her dollish and childlike for as long as they could. Kalaha insisted, gesturing to her own face as reference of good credit. Walayla consented and Kalaha smiled, going to her car and coming back with a bag of supplies. Walayla laughed to herself because clearly this session was premeditated. Kalaha laid out her supplies and challenged Walayla to simply trust her. She coated, lined, brushed, smoothed, contoured, and glued, commanding Walayla's stillness. They laughed during the application of lashes and Kalaha's instruction to pucker and work the gloss into her lips. Kalaha was just finishing Walayla's face when she heard a sound, a something enchanting from outside. Kalaha paused and listened too, smiling. The sound intensified, and Walayla, ever curious, stood and left from her bathroom. Wait, I'm not finished yet. You didn't even look at your face, girl, Kutlaha called out and Walayla glided to the front of the house and out the front door. She peeked down at the street and took a breath at the sight of men and women proceeding down the street in resplendent color spectrum. They walked like wolves, one far in front, others leading closer to the body of the group, a mass of men, women and children, elders walking at the center and another at the back, watching the flank. They beat drums and padded tambourines, chanting as they passed, the feathered plumes of their suits swaying and tilting as they moved. Walayla was instantly enamored, for never before had she seen anything quite so beautiful as them moving within art beneath a cotton candy sky, only just speckling with stars. She felt their drumbeats in her chest, and her curiosity was trance-like. She was about to follow them when she felt Katlaha grab her arm. Wait, where are they going? She protested, and Katlaha laughed. The same place we going, but come on, I have to finish getting it together. Well, Layla stole one last peek at the walking tribe before she followed Katlaha back inside and let her apply the second false lash. When she was done with that. She got some earrings, a necklace, and a few dainty rings to fit Walayla's fingers, as well as some bracelets to add a bit of depth to Walayla's insistently simple outfit. When Katlaha stepped back to observe her work, she nodded, pleased. Walayla was as beautiful as dawn. The sudden pride in Katlaha's eyes made her instantly curious, and when she looked in the mirror, she had to take a moment to just be quiet. She'd never seen herself like she saw herself in that moment. She was Walayla, but different, older, fancier, softer. She registered the balance that the jewelry brought to her appearance. She didn't know what to say. You're welcome, cut said with a smile, before heading out the bathroom and packing up while Walayla stared at herself, silly with newfound curiosity of this new but still familiar face. Alright, Walayla, let's go. Walayla went to the front and was handed a small purse, which Katlaha instructed her to put what she needed inside. She held up two sets of shades and told Walayla to pick, and she picked the black simple ones and placed them on her face in mimicry of Katlaha who wore brown tinted ones edged with fine gold and filigree. Katlaha patted her body, then checked her purse. Then scanned the room before deciding she was ready and she led Walayla out the house into her car, a splendid pearl sport with red leather, leather seats. They hopped inside and Kutlaha checked her face in her rearview mirror before saying, you can thank Cleopatra for the jewelry. She paused and evaluated her work once more, you look very beautiful baby, Walayla as. Kalaha started her engine before pulling off toward that first destination of the night. Kalaha turned down an old oak-lined road, which opened to a big expanse of gravel where a load of cars, trucks, and motorbikes were parked. Ahead, where Layla could make out the shape of a huge alligator made out of what appeared to be metal, with its toothy maw wide open emanating light from inside, as well as from windows that lined the body. Cutlaha swerved through the parking lot until she found the spot she was satisfied with, parked, and reapplied her lip gloss before handing it to Walela to do the same. They got out the car and walked to the outside of the giant metal alligator where a multitude of men and women were gathered, some in the back of their trucks, others in chairs, some standing. There were men barbecuing out the backs of their pickups, women selling yakaming from trailers, and no short supply of liquor vendors at the familiar sound of burnt. I'm sorry, and the familiar smell of burning earth. Walela well, heard the sounds of drums and tambourines again, and noticed that up ahead, men and women like those she'd seen outside her house were gathered in ritual. The plumes and beads of their suits different, though. Walela well, was absent-minded to the glances of the gatherers of the attracted men and the curious women. Some recognized her from her cooking, others as patrons of her plants. Her eyes were locked on the site of the maskers in full regalia. She wanted to stop there too, but Kalaha insisted she stay with her as they turned to enter the mouth of the gator. They walked from the front through a possession of through a procession of multiple dimensions built within the enormity of the reptile shaped monument. They passed first through a grocery store. Filled with produce and other goods, through another door and they were passing through a barber shop, through another door, a seamstress fabric store and laundry mat, then a botanica, then a shoe store. Well Lila was perplexed because as big as the gator looked on the outside. There was no way it fit that much on the inside. Unless of course it was charmed by magic. They passed through until she and Katlaha entered a mechanic shop. Opened on both sides to the crossing of the bayou and the parking lot, if Walela had to guess, she'd say they were in the tail of the gator. It was dormant of activity, save for the light in a room on the second story. Katlaha began to walk to the stairs when she and noticed a familiar form wiping down the hood of a car parked in the shop. Daddy upstairs, she asked. Yeah, he up there getting ready with Cleo. Danahi turned from his sister to glance at Walela, and it was clear that at first he didn't recognize her. She watched as his eyes shifted with register of her form and he smiled. Walela, She smiled shyly as Katlaha continued up the iron stairs. Hey, Danahi, she said suddenly fidgety as he placed the towel down and leaned against the roof of the car. His form was as demanding of pause as ever. Walela well, glanced at his tapestry of tattoos, covering every bit of exposed skin save his face. He was dressed simply in a loose t-shirt and a pair of jeans. He smiled and Malayla thought her little heart would jump out her chest. She commanded it to calm. He was, after all, just a boy. How is your side? She asked and then now he furrowed his brow, confused. Until he registered that, Waléla pointed to where she would shot him. He laughed and shook his head and waved away her concern. Flesh wound, baby. I'm straight. How you doing, though? He asked, and Waléla responded plainly. I'm good. You look different. Yeah, Kalaha did my makeup, she said, and he shook his head. Nah, not the makeup. It's in your eyes, he said, and at that, their gaze is locked for an uninterrupted second, broken only by Kutlaha's voice from upstairs. Well, Layla, come up here and meet Chief. She glanced politely at the Nahi, who gestured for her to go on, and she headed upstairs to the lamp-lit room where a figure in golden yellow stood at its center, being fussed over by Cleopatra, straightening and repositioning the tiniest details out of place. Well, Layla drew a breath at the sight of the back of a suit bigger than any of the other ones she'd seen. Cutlaha was standing at the door, watching she and the Nahi's father be prepared by Cleopatra, his friend of so many years. She was indeed the godmother of his children. She smiled past him when she saw Walele at the room's entrance. Well, look at you. The magnolia blooms with the equinox. Walela well, thanked her before she heard the voice of the man on the other side of the feather mantle. Come round here so I can get a good look at you, he said. Walela well, glanced at Katlaha who gestured for her to creep to his front. Walela's well, jaw dropped at the sight of the suit, laid out over the form of this massive man who stood taller than the Danahi with shoulders much wider. Walela well, looked at him from the bottom up taking in the array of images across his body, etched, stitched, beaded, and sewn in patches surrounded by gemstones and other materials. Up close, while Layla could truly absorb the textural marvel of the suit, its intricacies of craftsmanship, the weight of time spent, resources expended, knowledge applied, the suit was a manifestation of creative power. The most drawing focal of the suit was a beaded eagle with wings spread, tips meaning at the top. Chief, this is Walayla. Walayla, this is Chief, Kalaha said, and she looked up to see to the giant's face. It was a hard face, lined and scarred. His nose was broad and his lips were full, his brow heavy. It was a man's face, a warrior's face, marked with tattoos at the temple and under the eyes, He looked down at her with that face, and Walayla was a bit intimidated until his lips quirked into what she realized was a smile, flashing gold-capped incisors. You a little thing, he said at the furrow of her brow, he continued. I don't mean no harm by that. Matter of fact, much the opposite. Y'all little women got the most heart in a fight. I'd bet on you. He said, extending his large fist for Walayla to bump softly with her own. These two good and used to me done seen about every suit I ever made. You got some fresh young eyes on you. Tell me, on a scale of one to ten, how pretty I look to you. Walayla looked up at the man whose question wasn't complimented by the rough masculinity of his face. Was it a trick question? She wasn't about to tell this man he was ugly. She didn't think he was, but pretty? She'd never been asked by a pretty man if he was pretty. Kutlaha thankfully gave her some help. He means the suit, Walela. How pretty you think his suit is. Cleopatra and Kalaha laughed while Chief kept his face humorously frowned up in anticipation of her answer. Walayla looked over the suit as close to one as anyone outside of the tradition might ever be, still coated in the energy of newness, largely unwitnessed, and marriage to the force of the wearer's spirit merged to the material on only the most sacred of days and nights, the suit was the ultimate expression of investment into art, which is followed by the release and passage to something new. While Layla looked over the images, suddenly serious in her inspection. She looked over depictions of black glittering suns, symbols of sevens and ginyami, skulls and birds, swamp animals, and warriors of the motherland and turtle island. The suit depicted the orally passed down tales of victory which could be wiped from paper but never from the remembering tongue. They were multi cut gemstones and crystals laid throughout the smallest details, some of the most profound. The suit was as Bulbancha itself, led with dimensions, instrumental but unseen by the unfocused eye. The layers of the piece were as the piece's nature in whole, fleeting, meant to be captured in memory and emotion. The power of its conception found in the reality that to see it once, to wear it once or twice, was to perhaps never do so again, and to create it, enter it, share it anyway. To love it to such a degree as to pour your soul into it with no guarantee of its sustaining you beyond spiritual satisfaction in return. To love it enough to let it go. To have enough faith in the abundance which would allow you to start new. While Layla stepped back, feeling entranced by this artistic feat, accomplished by the large hands of this man whose face was unpretty. And he knew that. But he did not need to be pretty, and he made the most beautiful thing in all the world. All the world, as far as Layla was concerned. In that moment, this man, in all his mass, unfamiliarity, hardness, war-battered in the face, and burly in the voice, perhaps intimidating to those who had reason to be, was the most beautiful to her, the prettiest she'd seen. Pretty, pretty, chief. No number big enough, she said, and the chief liked her answer. They proceeded out a special exit built into the shop specifically for this type of movement, and they walked from the alligator's tail all the way to its front, where the spectators and the rest of the tribe were waiting. Kalaha told Walayla that the name of their masking clan was the Seven Feathers Cheyenne in homage to collective ancestry which stretched way back to the roaring plains of Bison's Thunder, far beyond their swamp to the northwest. The chief was received with war cries and chants and the pounding of drums before he came to stand at the center of where a path was cleared for him. Big Chief looked at his people nodding in satisfaction at the splendor of ritual and spiritual practice before he spread his arms wide at the intensifying of the drumming. The war cries reached a heavy draw when he brought his gloved hands together and light flashed in transformation that was a shock to no one but Walayla. The light dissipated and where the chief stood glided to the ground, a single feather which Katlaha went forward to pick up for Walayla followed everyone's eyes to the flight of the eagle, headed west beneath the star-filled sky. The gator station promptly cleared out. Those remaining members of the Seven feathered Cheyenne hopped in the backs of trucks, while everyone else steadily drove out until the parking lot was nearly empty. Cleopatra said she'd meet them at their destination, and Cutlaha and Walayla were headed to the call when they heard the Nahi call out. Lala, I'm coming with y'all. Hurry up then. We gotta go to the portal before it closes. She said And a moment later the Nahi was coming out the mechanic's shop with a set of keys in his hand. He turned to the metal alligator and pressed the button. Kalaha had Walela step back as the alligator came to life. Where it had been stone still, it creeped into motion, its inside lights shutting off, its jaw snapping shut. A pair of eyes lit up red as the links of its body pumped and lurched. It stood on four extending legs and walked as a real gator would have across the grass and into the bayou, disappearing into the water, leaving no trace but the ripples of current which eventually stilled. Cool, huh? Denai said to Alela, who stood there dumbfounded. Let's go, Katlaha said, clearly used to the sight of the automaton. They all piled into Katlaha's car. Nahi dramatically for his height under the low ceiling. Wellela sat in the back but didn't mind because it gave her private space to steal glances at the Nahi and blend into the background as the twins talked. They rode across Borbancha to a park space, dominated by the twisting of old and lush oaks near the curve of the great river. They had to ride through parts of the land where Wellela had never ventured to, where large houses stood and many beings and Many beings who eerily looked like her old masters dwelled under the cloak of night. Kutlaha assured her they were fine, just passing through the territory to reach the portal gate as the night walkers in their gaudy attire. I'm sorry all that sentence. Kutlaha assured her they were fine, just passing through the territory to reach the portal gate as the night walkers in their gaudy attire. Stared disapprovingly as the roar of the many cars, bikes, four wheelers, and trucks passed. In mass, Walayla's people parked their cars in and around the park. She and the twins got out the car and walked among others to an open clearing. The field seemed ordinary to Walayla, lit just enough by the moon. It wasn't until they got closer to the center that she and the others were able to see the gate Katlaha had mentioned. It wasn't a structural gate, but an energy portal, a tall stream of shifting light coursing down from the sky to the ground. While well, watched as people passed through one side of the portal and disappeared completely, she followed Katlaha and the Nahi through and found herself in what at first felt like the same field, and it was. But it was not in the same context of space. The field before had been quiet, the light of mansions visible through the twining of oak branches, electric light dimming the sky. On this side of the portal, though, they stepped into an atmosphere of clean air, thrumming with the singing of crickets, frogs, clicking bats, and rustling trees. The sky was blanketed in stars and the moon pulsed its ivory luminescence. There were no houses here, no presence of her old masters in their kind. This dimension was that of an ancient forest of tall, wide, and wise oaks. They began to walk on with the others congregating into a mass caravan of people, men, women, and children, walking with clear destination through the night, the paths maintained by what must have been regular passage through the swamp forest. Bands of horse riders passed on the bikes of painted mares and eager stallions, some of them dressed in the attire of maskers, their feathered mantles swaying in the starlight. As they walked, Kutlaha explained. Back there, she said in reference to the side of the portal which they came, the land has been manipulated and occupied. Our ancestors noodled. The forest was not like the ridge land created by Jah Most High for our living. Kutlaha gestured to the ancient forest which stretched for miles in either direction. Bordered by the winding river and the lake to the north. Beyond the bone road, we were to only cross over the neutral ground between our world and that of the old wild to hunt. And even then, only the most skilled and knowledgeable of hunters were permitted to pass the forest's borders to hunt in the territory of black bears, panthers, and wolves. It was known that the land was not to be civilized, for its sanctity was maintained by the absence of humans. And the potency of its unpredictability. In the great forest safety was not guaranteed, your return home from the hunt not promised, for the oaks sheltered the walking of the many great creatures, bigger in the past, unafraid of man, who needed to change everything in their settling. There were also those great spirits which roamed the wilds, sensitive about their sanctuary. In the other world, Much darkness contributed to the inevitable cultivation of the oak wilds there, but this dimension maintains its virgin state. We are permitted by the oaks to pass through the portal on certain days in which the stars align, so long as we are respectful of this space. War, for which humans are always banned from the spiritual dimension, is not permitted, and there's always a cap on our time here. The limitation makes nights like this, that much more special, however, Kutlaha said, and they walked in communal mass until they reached a familiar clearing in the forest, where at the center stood a large, low-hanging oak tree ringing with the melody of heavy chimes. Kutlaha and Danahi stepped confidently onto the field of mass gathering, and Walayla looked up in wonder at the sky. Shifting in rays of light that flowed like water, colored in fire ochre, crimson, indigo, and periwinkle. The aurora was like sheer fabric, and the stars were still bright and visible through the veils, which hewed the field in soft colors. The night prevented no sight, for the natural light was bright enough. Walayla stole a glance at the nahi and the aurora light before glancing away as quickly. She didn't see it, but he looked at her too. Intrigued by her form and its changes, he liked the wonder in her eyes as they came to approach the drumming and tambourine playing of the seven feather Cheyenne, chanting call in response to the steady drum of cowbells and dancing feet hollering war cries. While Layla was pulled undramatically and gently out of the spy boy's path as cultural participants formed a wide circle around Damascus, she liked the feel of the man's hands. Layla ventured beyond the twins, however, pacing across the field to see the many unique and intricate suits. She was fascinated by the presence of many animals in the space, birds, deer, and other swamp mammals which ventured from the tree line into the thick of the celebration. They were residents of the spiritual dimension and understood that the humans here were no threat to them in their celebration. A herd of white-tailed doe, stamped curiously at the processions of master creators, Well, Layla felt all warm inside after smoking some herb with the twins, and she processed deeply the ritual chanting the color spectrums of the aurora. She looked up at the sky and imagined that the many stars were themselves sentient individuals, ancestors watching the celebration of those still bound to earth, but optimistic in the journey to freedom, pouring that which was better into their world than the evils which otherwise gave them challenge. The pounding of drums, gleaming of beads, twirling of tassels and the sway of plumed feathers was cleansing both of external and internal space, physical and metaphysical, spiritual and mental. The celebration was that of home, of knowledge, preservation and perseverance. It was the reunion of bloodlines, families, tribes, ethnicities and nations. Here was the neutral space where enemies could meet in grace and patience and discuss the clearance of dispute before any battles manifested. It was the court of the chiefs, who spoke to each other with much more than words, communicating through the quality of their suits, the proficiency of movement and execution of their tribes' pieces. It was war performance as well as celebration. Much energy poured into the making of suits, so not to be displaced into violence, for which the people knew too well and cared not for its indulgence beyond the necessary unification of power before the advance of true enemies. Valela's marveling was broken by the stimulation of movement in her peripheral, and she noticed a general flow of movement in the direction of the chime tree. The participants of celebration began to move as one, crossing the field together to gather in the mass near the oak, laying blankets down beneath the stars. The different tribes sat in their proximal sections, each marked by distinct phenotypes of color and shape of feature. Their chiefs sat center, and their families sat around them, like solar systems of planets around suns. Each tribe was its own galaxy in the cosmic sea of the field, mirrored to the stars. While Layla looked up, registering the nebula in the also clear sky, she processed the dimension of space above and the position of stars not as above them but around them in their world. Walayla well, walked ahead, singular in her form. She walked, trailed by the curious animals who also made their way to the tree, the birds all congregating to perch on its branches while butterflies and dragonflies fluttered around unfazed by the night. Walela well, glanced to her right and saw Cutlaha seated next to her father. Sitting like a mountain with his tribe. She beckoned Walayla over and she went to sit on a blanket weaved with its own images of swaying planes and running mustangs. She asked Katlaha what was going on, and Katlaha whispered, The Adigataya are almost here. She said, and Walayla tried to repeat the word in questioning Katlaha repeated, Adigataya the guardian spirits of Bobancha. Walela well, made an O shape with her mouth and sat in anticipation as the others. A moment later, the Nahi rose from the other side of his father, a candle in his hand. He walked ahead, and Walela saw a single member from each tribe rising to approach the chime tree with offerings of either candles, incense, or flowers, until a circle of fire, glowing white candles, were nestled at the base of the chime tree's roots. They returned to their tribes. And the chime tree began to ring its melody, heavier and more insistent than it had been, as if cued by the lighting of the candles. Its sound was intoxicating, and Malayla felt her eyes grow heavy and her chest grow warm. She felt the sudden inclination to bow her head in quiet prayer, thanking Jah Most High for the divinity of this space. She sat like that in prayer for who knows how long exactly, only raising her head at the sight of her own hands— tinted by the glow of blue light, curious. She rose her head and turned to her left and she gasped. There next to her was a form of opaque blue, dressed as Damascus with feathered mantle and all. The figure appeared like they were made of smoke. The form whispered in constant flow at the outline. The woman turned to Walela and looked at her with pupilless eyes of glowing white. Walela was at first nervous until the spirit smiled, and she smiled back as surely as she could before the ancestor turned her head back forward. Walayla well, looked around and saw there were many spirits, all different in shape and attire, but all similar in their glowing blue auras, all throughout the field, in and among the tribes, filling up space to maximum capacity, far outnumbering the celebration's physical participants. What's wrong? Cutlaha's voice turned Walela's attention, and she turned to the young Mino, not quite knowing what to say. She went to point to her left, but when she turned her head, the apparition was gone. All of them were absent from her sight as if they hadn't been there before. Kutlaha and many others hadn't seen the many ancestral spirits, but when Walela glanced at Cleopatra. The knowing look of reassurance in her amber eyes relayed that she carried the sight to see the ascended as well. After a time, a number of forms emerged from the congregations of the field, each coming to sit in a semicircle around the chime tree, positioning themselves to face the audience. They were all dressed in intricate attire, though they differed in structure from those suits of Damascus. These figures, who seemed to appear as from the void as the blue smoke spirits, were dressed in war clothes vastly unique in shape, color, and texture. Their armor was as diverse as their faces. Walayla sensed the movement, turning to see denahi coming from around his father to sit next to her, one knee raised with his arm resting against it. "'Those are the Adagataya,' he said, and Walayla found it interesting. How undramatic the arrivals had been. There were no shouts of praise, no applause, no prostrating. The spirits who appeared in physical were hailed with quiet respect. Walayla noticed a pair of familiar women seated next to each other. To Hekama and Nahini, she said, not having expected to see them tonight. True to their supernatural senses, the sisters both glanced in Walayla's direction at the speaking of their names. Nahini gave no acknowledgement beyond the passing glance, but Tehekama sent her a soft smile. night he went on to name the other spirits in congregation. From left to right he directed Walayla's gaze to each, starting with a man with short black hair and a dark trimmed beard. He wore deep greens with blue accents, his armor emblemed by fish, his arms marked with tattoos. His name was Mal, patron spirit of Borbancha's bayous and tributaries guardian of fishermen and all those who depended on fresh water to make a living. His sacred animals were the bass, goldfish, tree frog, and water moccasin. To honor him, one should be respectful of all waterways. His eyes carried a balanced stillness which could not be judged for calm or sadness. Next to him sat the broad-shouldered and lock-haired chichumba, spirit of the lower Mississippi river patron of those who rowed and built canoes and the warriors of the indigenous ethnicities which lived on the river. He wore a black patterned over white alligator skin, for the alligator was his namesake and sacred animal along with the catfish, crawfish, and snapping turtle. He was the father of Mao. Next was Sintolo, spirit of the east and the rising sun. A patron of healers and archers, his sacred animal was the diamond-backed rattlesnake and the red-tailed hawk. sentalo's brother was Shan, spirit of the setting sun, patron of second sons. dark-eyed and haired, not of great height but stocky with strength. His sacred animals were the raccoon, the bat, and the night heron. sentalo and Shan were the children of Nahini, spirit of the sun, who birthed them from Fala's devotion. Fala sat near his sons, dressed in a fit as black as his face tattoos, his braided hair touched by gray at the sides. Fala, whose sacred animals were crows, ravens, and opossums, served as the guide of the dead down the bone road to the realm of the afterlights. Next to Nahini and to Hekama, spirit of the moon, was Princess Aiko, dressed in red, slender framed. She was the patron of insects and the underestimated... Her sacred animal was the dragonfly for its speed and freedom. There was Nita, spirit of the forest, mother of Bobancha. Her hair was long and grey, and she wore a fit of befer, emblematic of the black bear her sacred animal. The night he paused before naming the next spirit, an unreadable look in his eyes as he spoke. Noshoba. She was dressed in silvery grey her hair braided in two plaits down her torso with two eagle feathers at the back. Her eyes were fierce. She sat stoic and cross-legged, clearly mino by the spear, armor, and gold mantles which marked those women of the order. She was a powerful shapeshifter, like all the Adagataya, possessing the power to change into a wolf. She served with Nita as a guardian of the forest and the spirit world dimension. These all were the spirits who were primarily of Bobancha in Turtle Island, and he said the next six spirits were not originally from the swamp. they had come with their people across the big water from the motherland. There was Obatala, dressed in all white, his face covered by a veil of beads, a long staff at his side. It was to him that this celebration was homaged. For the Sky Father was a patron of creative artists, and his sacred animal was the Dove. Then, Shango was named, dressed in white, red, and black, his skin tatted, his eyes cool with the confidence of violent capacity reserved for necessity. He was of thunder and lightning and war, and was aligned with fighting dogs and roosters. After Obatala and Shango sat three women their skin of different shades of glowing brown, their hair of the same inky black, worn at different lengths. They were the three sisters, the Delta, Trinity, spirits of water and rain. There was Oshun, dressed in golden yellow, emerald green and rich blue, an Afro crowning her beauty mock face. She was, as her sisters, a warrior of high capacity, an ancient Mino who practiced beauty, kindness, and love as tools of combat against the forces of evil. She was of the glittering rivers, which caused the force of fertility and sensuality. Her animals were the peacock and the vulture. Next was Oya, unwavering in her fearlessness, Her hair was short to her scalp, but she wore a fit made of bones. She was the spirit of the transitioning dead, change, feminine warcraft, lightning, and thunder. She loved the market and guarded the resting places of the dead. Etched into her fit were the numbers 999, for her storms were as the number, ushering the end of cycles to make room for the new. She loved the fierce buffalo, then... Fair faced and thick bodied was Yamaya, whose hair was fashioned bodaciously and sheen, edged to perfection, her beauty was calculated. The ocean mother, keeper of deltas, commander of wealth, and patron of mother's devotion, she was as old as any story known, yet still she shined with the eager eyes of youthful discovery. She was fleeting as the tide, and was joined to the frequency of seven. Dressed in ivory, sea green, and deep indigo, she loved the dolphins, sea turtles, and waterfowl. It was she who initiated the pursuit of her people across the ocean, for her love for them was of such potency, she could not bear to see them stolen without a fight for their return. For as long as it took, she would see her children back to their own deltas. Walela's well, introduction to the Adigataya was followed by the rising of someone who had been very near but unnoticed until that moment. They were a member of the Seven Feathers Cheyenne, though they were not dressed as the maskers. They wore a more singular fit like the attire. It was beaded ivory and black, fitted, cinched by an armor corset, accented by jewelry of Mino's signification. Their form was not clearly male or female, though they certainly were not a man their expression, posture, and forward possession oozing with natural femininity. They walked forward and sat at the center of the Adagataya's semicircle. circle still was trying to register how she hadn't noticed them at all until just then, asking the Nahi if they'd been around all that time. He nodded before Cleopatra's voice said softly into the silence. Listen closely, Walayla. The Ocaliope prepares their speech. Thigh-length hair was plaited in two braids over their chest, and their head was adorned with a mantle of slender feathers at the front, a circle of bald ones at the back. Their fabrics were beaded, but there was clear attention to pattern versus narrative imagery. They were of medium build and bronze skin, eyes dark brown, almost onyx, and hair raven black. They walked singularly to the base of the oak, where they lit their own stick of incense before sitting, cross-legged before the audience. "'Ocaliope,' Walayla asked, sounding out the word, and the nahi answered simply, "'The water speaker.' The ocaliope, who had been quiet enough to not be seen, parted their lips to speak, and their voice commanded attention. It was sure." old and young at once full with the power of faith and charged up by intentional reservation and vocal fasting i proclaim my name they said omina olomi malani princess of ten thousand moons keeper of the east and treasure of the sea for those who grace me with the honor of listening i will tell you a story the field settled into listening and everything from the chimes to the crickets went silent for Omina's speech. Our people of the sun, bayou and Cyprus stewarded this land since the walking of the mastodon. Our people stolen from their own deltas to labor in this one. Both people are we. One decimated to the brink, The other displaced and bred as livestock, they saw the darkness of many lifetimes within one. Those indigenous to this land recognized those from across the big water as like themselves and helped them to survive in the otherwise inhospitable swamps. The bloodlines were depleted, their placement on their ancestral land insecure. They were faced with a choice. They could, as others, align in agreements with their enemies for the mere chance of assimilation and acceptance, or they could align with those in bondage. They saw their shackled hands and registered the pain in their eyes, but they did not see them for their misfortune. They saw these people for power, for likeness, subdued in the moment, but perhaps one day freed and once so, would never be bound again. They decided Better to preserve our bloodline and complement to these powerful captives who work the land as we, who love the land as we, who love the sun as we. Better that us and them become we than lose our true blood and become nothing. Our ancestors of the swamp married those from across the water and many tribes became as one, more powerful together than they were apart. Those from across the water gained the knowledge through genetic inheritance of the land, the animals, the corridors, the memory as one we survived. Those of the sun provide knowledge. The blood of those from the ships provided physical strength, warriors capacity, supernatural talent for growing crops, the gift of singing, the base of drum rhythm and healing recipes, the will to live on our own land with courage in the face of death than to lose our souls and our homes, clinging to the possibility of survival. The union of two diasporas, of many deltas, of many tribes brings us here today. We homage our ancestors who are with us now as always with recognition through art and life, practice which complements that art. We thank Jah Most High most sincerely for our survival and the survival of our swamp, for the knowledge which cannot be taken from us, for our spirits which are free, even when our bodies are tethered, we manifest our ascendance together. With that, the ballad of the Okaliope was over, and at once the field returned to its noise and celebration. The Adagataya moved away from the chime tree which commenced its chiming, flow, flowing into the crowd to talk with their people, who engaged with them as family, friends, community. Walela well, watched Omina be embraced by the three sisters, Oshun, Oya, and Yamaya, sitting with Yamaya after the other two walked off into the field. Walela well, was standing with the seven feathered Cheyenne when Nishoba, the wolf woman, approached them. Her eyes remained still, her posture like a general, addressing her soldiers. She came to stand in front of Chief, who looked down at her greeting cordially. Nashoba. Chief, she said, before looking at Danahi and Katlaha and extending her arms for embrace. Katlaha went to her tight, and Nashoba smoothed Katlaha's hair methodically, though her stoic eyes remained without the warmth of affectionate expression. Danahi hugged her after Katlaha, and upon a good look at Nashoba's face, Walela registered the features she shared with twins. Nashoba looked up at the analyzing his features but saying nothing before she turned to Walela. This is the one, she asked, her tone unimpressed. Mother, Katlaha said, and but Nashoba was unfazed. She walked up to Walela, looking in her eyes like a challenge. Walela didn't look away, but she didn't match Nasoba's intensity. Hello, she said. And Nasoba looked her from form over before turning to her daughter. She's not strong enough, she said, clearly with knowledge of something to which everyone but Walayla had context for. She will be. It was Cleopatra who spoke from the left side of chief. Nasoba glanced at the hoodoo woman. Seeming largely unimpressed with her, too. Katlaha Nashoba turned to her daughter. My offer still stands. Whatever the offer was, mention of it made Katlaha draw a deep breath. I'm happy why I am mama. Nashoba didn't press further, nodding simply. Before turning, not saying goodbye to anyone before heading off toward the edge of the forest. Two other Mino walked in tow. They had accompanied Nashoba to the celebration. Their names were Raksha and Ute. Ute, dressed in green and black, looked like Nashoba and Kalaha, but did not possess the chief's features. She was the eldest of Nashoba's children, a shapeshifter like her mother and siblings, but not for chief. Chief acknowledged Ute with a nod, Danahi hugged her, and Katlaha clasped her sister's hand. She apologized to Walayla for her mother's briskness and wished her luck in the commencement of her trials, insisting that they'd see each other soon. Eventually, the Adagataya departed, and the people began to trek back to their native dimension. They left the field as empty as they'd found it. When Walayla got in the car with Kalaha, she asked, what didn't mean when she said I wasn't strong enough? Not strong enough for what? Katlaha glanced at Walayla through her rearview mirror. Ignore my mother. She don't mean harm, she's just hard edged in her cow. Katlaha ultimately had an answer Walayla's question. For what? Katlaha. Katlaha met Walela's eyes in the mirror. There's a challenge You'll inevitably face, as we all do, to become Mino. Right now you're perhaps not strong enough, but it doesn't matter, you'll get strong. What if I don't? She asked. Looking at who said nothing. Looking out the window as if he didn't hear that conversation. You will. You have to. For all that depends on it, but that's enough said for tonight. Put it out your mind, okay? Thinking about it too much or just complicate things. Kalaha changed the subject. Did you at least have fun tonight? She asked, and Walayla admitted that she did. Kalaha nodded in affirmation and drove Walayla home, and as soon as she stepped through her door, she found she was too tired to think about anything except the task of getting to her bed. She dove into sleep. Rock to rest by the recollection of the many sights at the night of Obatala.